Four Corners podcast. Hello and welcome everyone to the next episode of the Four Corners podcast with your host, Klisman Marathi. And in this episode, we have Prem Sika in the hot seat today. Prem is a member of the UK House of Lords, Emeritus Professor of Accounting at the University of Essex and at the University of Sheffield. And he's got a lot of experience working in corporate finance in the accounting side. And he's got a very interesting life story to tell us today and also to give us real insights into, into the complex matrix that is the UK tax system and what many concerned citizens may be missing out on when understanding how this Goliath works. So we welcome Prem Sika to the podcast today. Hello, nice to see you and thank you for asking me to participate in this uh, podcast and the friendly conversation. Wonderful. So Prem, you gave your maiden speech in Parliament on October 20th, where you mentioned the reason why you were there is to make people's lives easier and happier, in a sense. And that comes by tackling the economic situation in the country. You also talked about a dark side of capitalism, which is in existence in the UK, and that there's a systemic problem of the tax system and general corporate finance. Could you go into a little bit about what you meant by that? Yeah, let's uh, look at th these kind of issues. I think in a, in a comparatively rich country, when you have about 14 and a half million people living below the poverty line, that is not really good for anybody. Of course, people are suffering in silence. Uh, they can't get access to good housing, good food, good education, healthcare, many things. And of course, uh, it does not end there. When poor people retire, they generally receive poor pensions. And our state pension is uh, pretty low. It's about 29% of average earnings, whereas many other countries do much, much better. The average in the OECD countries is more than 60%. And so, so, that, so that is pretty bad. And, and in many ways, it's really the result of a systemic problems and government policies you know if you if you turn the clock back a little bit in 1976 the wages and salaries paid to british workers accounted for about 65.1 percent of of uk gdp uh, today it is about 49.4 49.5 percent that is a massive decline in the wages and salaries of the average person. So not really surprising that many people are suffering and the poverty has become endemic. So we really need to address these problems and they can't be addressed without a critical scrutiny of corporate power. So corporate power is everywhere. At one level, we rely upon companies for jobs and investment. At another level, the companies are able to hire and fire people, pay low wages. They're able to sponsor political parties. They are able to give consultancies to individual legislators to get their way. And I think that is a crisis from my perspective. And also, you know, there are many wiser souls in corporations who do recognize that unless people have a good amount of purchasing power, they cannot really sell their goods and services. So in some senses, 
uh, it is essential that we do have an equitable distribution of income and wealth in our society. You mentioned the tax system in your introduction. If we look at our tax system, it is incredibly regressive. You know, with great regularity, the government uh, increases uh, personal allowances, tax-free personal allowances of people. That is good news for those who are earning above currently £12,500 a year. But it doesn't do anything for anybody earning less than that. We have our pension system where people get tax relief on pension contributions. But about one and a half million people earn less than £12,500 a year and they pay into pension schemes, they get zero help. So, so, so we have a kind of a regressive tax system. So you look at the VAT, VAT of 20% hurts the poorest the most. And you look at our national insurance contributions, you pay 12% uh, up to your earnings of 50,000 pounds. Beyond that, it is 2%. So the richer you are, uh, the national uh, the national insurance contributions account for a s smaller part of your contributions. Mm -hmm. VAT is regressive. Council tax is regressive. Uh, whether you're whether you're a pauper or a millionaire, you end up paying the same kind of council tax. So so our tax system needs changes, huge changes. It is regressive. And, and the people at the bottom can't just be jettisoned off. We need a minimum income guaranteed for everybody. That is a way to lift people out of poverty. So we need a huge kind of, uh, uh, a, a, as it were, a resettlement of, of between the people and businesses and uh, governments. You also mentioned the darker side of capitalism. Well, yes. There is a very, very dark side, and you don't have to look beyond the city of London. You know, anyone looking at uh, newspapers would know the city of London is a serial offender. It is perpetually engaged in scandals, whether it is mis-selling mortgages, payment protection insurance. Uh, it, it has been rigging interest rates, foreign exchange rates. Uh, City of London's broad is the only part of the economy which has crashed the whole economy. Uh, you know, who can forget the 2007-8 banking crash, which has ushered in a never-ending austerity, and uh, people's average incomes have stagnated ever since. Buying a house is beyond m most people now. Uh, so, so City of London, you know, people think contributes a huge amount to the economy. I'm sure it does uh, contribute something, but there is academic research to show that between 1997 and 2015, it made a negative contribution to the UK economy to the tune of £4,500 billion. You know, it is the only finance industry is the only one which regularly needs to be bailed out. There is no other industry like that. Yet the finance industry exercises so much influence on government policies. You only have to look at the register of members' interests for the House of Lords and the House of Commons 
and you will notice that there are so many legislators acting as advisors and consultants to the finance industry. In other words, there is a built-in lobby for the finance industry. So, so if you want to look at the dark side of capitalism, let us start with the city of London, which has made the UK a global center for illicit financial flows. Huge amount of dirty money flows through the city of London. And of course, the UK is also home to a rampant tax avoidance industry, which is also funded not only by banks, financial services experts, but also by big accounting firms, big law firms. And the government itself admits that it is costing Britain billions of pounds. And the unofficial estimates are that the amount of taxes being avoided by British business and rich individuals could be over 100 billion pound a year. Just think about that, 100 billion, yeah. So that means since 2010, when the Conservative Party came to office, the UK has failed to collect over one trillion pound worth of tax revenues. Just imagine even if we had 20% of that, what we could do with it how we could improve our society, give people better healthcare, better houses, better schools, better education, better transport system, better pension. And, you know, so, so there is this huge dark side of capitalism, which is not always really explored, at least by uh, mainstream media. Mm -hmm. It sounds from the uh, comments you gave now that it's not only in one area of the economy. We have councils having even misspending money or not being efficient in, in the spending of money. You have the super level of politics in, in Westminster, which you can either say it's inefficient or they're, com they're complicit in this in some way, shape or form. What do you see as the main reasons behind this? Is it is it is it really down to human nature, meaning if you have wealth, you want to be able to keep it and you will create, you will help lobby a system which uh, preserves the wealth for you and your progeny. That's this, this system isn't only unique to the UK, but globally you have a, a system where if you have wealth, you want to be able to maintain it. You're not really thinking of the person next door so much. So governments need to come in to try to regulate this, but they don't do the best they can. Is that because they're incompetent in the way that they behave? Is it because they don't understand uh, the level to which uh, the problem is growing? Is it because they turn a blind eye because of other incentives? What's the, what's the main reason behind all of this? Because I think understanding that will be key in helping solve this in some way, shape or form into the future too. I think you, you raised some very interesting points and questions which can't easily be answered. But let us sort of make a start at that. I think mm -hmm. there is a huge disconnect between our institutions of governments and ordinary people. You know, people put a cross on a ballot paper every four or five years, then political parties go away, do whatever they want, and then they come back for the vote again. To my mind, that is not really democracy. You need to democratize every aspect of life. Take work, for example. You know, most people spend a very large part of their life at work. They're basically, the, these days, they are hired and fired at will. There is no democracy. 
people, even this putting this ritual cross on a ballot paper uh, does not happen beyond the factory gate and office door. So we need to democratize place of work. And there is some measure of democracy at work in many European countries, which have uh, worker elected directors. And, and, and the strange thing is that their economies do much better uh, than the UK's. And also, uh, they have greater investment in public services. They have a better state pension, better schools, better health care. Mm -hmm. so, so I think you know, that is something we also need to look at. Now, you talked about how people want to hang on to their wealth. One can understand that. But I think the problem is much more deeper and cultural. Firstly, there is nothing in our genetic structure which says that you must accumulate wealth and engage in endless consumption throughout your life. It is something that is learned from right at early age, from, from, from a very early age, we encourage intoxication with endless accumulation of private wealth, status, power. Now people accumulate wealth, which they can never spend. <laughs> uh, yet they are still intoxicated with it. Now, long-term solution to that is education, to think about what is good for everybody. But in the absence of that, what we then need are regulations and systems to redistribute. But what we have in the world we live, is, live in at the moment is that uh, wealth percolates upwards. So you look at many government initiatives, many government reliefs, many tax reliefs, grants, they percolate upwards. People at the bottom are left really struggling. And that is actually not really uh, good enough. So we need to change modes of government. We need to change institutions. We need to change our voting system. You know, when we look at our current first past the post voting system, all it does is if somebody gets 40% or so of the votes cast, they basically end up with a huge majority in the House of Commons. That is really equivalent to an elected uh, dictatorship. So in other words, a majority mm -hmm. of the people don't vote for a party, but it controls everything and can do whatever it wants. It does not really mm -hmm. reflect mm -hmm. the will of the people. So we need to change the way we elect governments, the way we vote. We need to change what happens at work. We need to change the tax systems. And these things have not changed, mainly because, as I said in the beginning, there is a huge disconnect between the people and institutions of government. And that is a bad thing. That means people lose faith in democracy. Many people don't vote, or many people think that a system does not really connect with them, therefore why bother? So, so I would like to change it so that people do have some faith in the system. Look, I'm in the House of Lords. If an opportunity arises to replace the House of Lords by an elected uh, chamber, I would be the first one to vote for it. Okay. So, but I am there at the moment, hopefully, so that I can cast that vote when it comes, so that we can bring about a meaningful change. So, um, mm. we, we need change which can enable everyone to live a fulfilling life. And that is the tragedy that many people simply are not going to be able to get an opportunity to live a fulfilling life. Mm -hmm. 
You mentioned the voting system particularly. And although we've had a referendum on the voting system uh, in the past where they put together a proposition to change it from a, a first while supposed to a more proportional system and the UK population voted against that. Uh, do you think things like this, it was a good idea in the first place for, I think it was, it was the Lib Dems who wanted to push this, maybe to also help their own gains for their own you know, political reasons because it would help them naturally. But uh, many people, as you, as, as you mentioned, are disconnected, but it's because they have other things to worry about. They have their lives to be engaged in. They have, they, they, they have a family, they have work, and politics is unfortunately a ritual, as you mentioned, which happens once every four to five years, where you hear the politicians on your TV screen promising the world and delivering um, really what you hold them accountable for. So if this engagement doesn't come from the people, and naturally we will see more social degradation in terms of a loss of trust and general, you know, sense of being let down by politics and by the promises that they make. What could this turn out to be in the future if these issues aren't solved? Because it seems as if we've been talking about tax changes for a very, very long time. So what would be the catalyst, do you think, that will make things perhaps go in a more positive way if it doesn't come from the people? I think let me just sort of pick up one of the issues and then I'll come back to the rest. You talk about politicians making promises which they then don't deliver. Now, let's think about this. Imagine a political party says to you, vote for us. We will give you better education, better housing, better state pensions. You name it, you will get it. So people flock and vote for it. But next day, uh, some... Uh, accountancy firms, big law firms, big banks say, sorry about that. You voted for all these good policies, but you aren't going to have any of these things because we have devised all kinds of tax avoidance schemes, which will mean that the rich people and corporations will not be paying taxes. Therefore, you can't have any of these things. In other words, we live in a world where big business is exercising a veto, and it has been exercising a veto for years and years. And of mm -hmm. course, uh, it's the interests of the big business are writ large in any legislation that you look at. So if you are going to revive democracy, if people are going to be in control, then a necessary condition of that is that you have to tackle corporate power. You can't have rampant corporate power and democracy. Two things are not compatible. You can have one or the other. Mm. My choice is for democracy. Mm. Okay. And governments have not shown any will whatsoever to tackle corporations. So let me give you an example, which I cited in my speeches in the House of Lords. This is all on public record. If anyone wants to check, they can. So we had a debate on the financial services bill and I, and I drew the, the attention of parliament to this episode. So here it goes. In 2012, HSBC was fined $1.9 billion in the US for facilitating money laundering. According to the US Department of Justice, HSBC admitted in writing, and I quote, criminal conduct. Okay, so HSBC by its own admission had been engaged in criminal conduct. 
Now, the $1.9 billion fine, which was the largest ever at that time, did not prompt the UK regulators to investigate the bank. HSBC paid the fine in the US, but it escaped prosecution because it entered a deferred prosecution agreement. However, another parliamentary committee in the, in the House of Representatives in the US was curious as to why on earth somebody who admits that they've been engaged in criminal conduct had not been prosecuted. So they launched their own investigation and published a report in 2016. That report showed that the then Chancellor George Osborne, Bank of England and the financial regulator, which at that time was Financial Services Authority, colluded. They jointly wrote to the US authorities asking them to go easy on HSBC because it was apparently too big to fail. So behind the scenes, the government been actively protecting an organization which by, own, which by its own admission was engaged in, in a criminal conduct. Not only HSBC, the UK government and regulators also intervened to protect Standard Chartered Bank and Barclays Bank. No announcement of these secret interventions been made to Parliament. Therefore, no uh, minister could be questioned. It is not only these events I got engaged in uh, uh, litigation against the UK government in 2006 because I had conducted some uh, academic research looking into the closure of the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, BCCI, which was shut down in July 1991. And to this day, there has not been an independent investigation into that closure. But nevertheless, the US investigations referred to a secret report, which was codenamed the Sandstorm Report. And that report, or large parts of it, at least 99% of it, was uh, is sitting in the US Congress library. But it is a state secret here. So I asked the government for a copy of it. Government refused. I, asked, I then asked the Information Commissioner to intervene on my behalf. Information Commissioner agreed with the government that this document should not be released, even though it is sitting in the US Congress library. I went to the courts. Three judges unanimously ruled in my favor. All this process took five and a half years. So what does this document show? This document show that the government is shielding the looters of BCCI who come from Al-Qaeda, Saudi intelligence, royal families in the Middle East, smugglers, uh, criminals, money launderers, you name it, they are all there. They are all being defended. So I raised this matter in the House of Lords and asked the government to reply. There was no apology from any minister for all this cover-up. There was no explanation, no promise, that they will not in future defend any organization which is engaged in criminal conduct. Was any parliamentary committee moved to launch an investigation? No. Paradoxically, a number of peers have stood up and said some of these interventions are necessary from time to time and how confidentiality helps the city of London. 
which poses fundamental questions. But what about our, the people's right to know? If we know that a government is defending criminal organization, it is protecting them, it is covering up their misdemeanors, would we really elect them? No. So the net result of this is that the city of London has protection from the government. Therefore, it can engage in all kinds of reckless acts, which we have seen, whether they are at RBS, HBOS, London Capital and Finance, anywhere else. There is little effective in law enforcement, little effective retribution. The UK is very good at having good laws on books, but there's a huge difference between the law on books and law in practice. And it is the practice I am interested in because that is what people face. So ordinary people who've been defrauded by banks, they write to the regulators, absolutely no response. They write to the ministers. I have seen some letters, no response. But the same ministers and regulators jump to defend criminal organizations. And that is wrong. So, so in a sense, you know, it is not really surprising people do get disillusioned uh, with the system because the system promises ethical practices, socially responsible practices, but it does not deliver them. And the fundamental problem behind that is corporate power. And I think that is what needs to be tamed above all. Mm. That's very, very interesting, very insightful that you mentioned that because someone who wouldn't be aware of this would maybe have their own preconceptions of how inefficient the government is and they blame it to inefficiency. But you're, what you're saying is that there is a methodological um, way of working which in some way, shape or form protects these institutions, uh, protects these players, which on the face of it do more harm than good to the economic system in the UK. So then how would you respond, and this is me playing the devil's advocate, how would you respond to someone that would say, well, on the one side, the UK government is trying to fight terrorism and counter-terrorism uh, in the Middle East and other places, but on the other side, they're protecting or they're not allowing investigations into assets that these groups have. So what side are they really on? What are, how, could you, how could they be doing two things at the same time? Fighting uh, terrorism on one side, but also in some way, shape or form, you know, blocking or protecting these assets from being exposed uh, to the world and not doing anything about it? How can two things exist at the same time? I think that's a very, very interesting and a deep set of questions. When I said Al-Qaeda operatives were looting BCCI, we have to remember uh, Al-Qaeda was a Western creation created in Afghanistan to fight the Soviets. So at that time, it was considered to be friendly. And I assume that the government is now embarrassed about it and, and is basically sort of covering up. But actually, terrorism come and comes in many different ways. Ask somebody who is going hungry, who's going, going homeless. They'll give you very different uh, uh, interpretation of what is affecting their lives the most. Uh, the UK government is very interested in this slogan and it, ministers use this slogan, we are open for business. Therefore, anybody from anywhere in the world can form a company in the UK and they engage in all kinds of illicit financial flows. Uh, money laundering is rife. 
So, so in a sense, the government is caught between this ideology of saying, well, we are disciples of laissez-faire, but at the same time promise people that they are secure, there is some kind of a financial stability. These things can't really be reconciled and uh, something has to go. And my view would be that the people's welfare and security always has to come first. Everything else is secondary. Now, it is very easy yeah. to control some of these things. Uh, for example, unlike the present laws, we can have a law which says that only individuals in the UK can become directors of UK companies. At the moment, anybody from anywhere in the world can become a director. Look, if you and I want a credit card or a passport, there are numerous checks. But if you want to form a company, you go online, you can do it yourself, will cost you about 15, 20 pound. And there you are, you have a company, you know, within a couple of days. Or you can buy it off the shelf. And absolutely, uh, you know, ridiculous. I, a couple of years ago, uh, one, uh, one day I was uh, a little bit bored. So I, as many bored people do, they go to company's house website. Uh, so I went on company's house website and I put, on, put in the name of a convicted mafia criminal from Italy, just out of curiosity and out popped a number of companies uh, in which, uh, with which he was connected. One of which uh, uh, was a bank. It was called the Business Bank Italy Limited. It had a website. I quickly looked at the, this company's accounts. Well, accounts were, were one page. Now, can you imagine a bank having accounts off one page? And uh, there was no continuity of the numbers, the figures from the amounts from one year to the next. I immediately reported that uh, to Annalise, D Annalise Dodds, uh, who was shadow chancellor until last night in the UK. She raised the matter in the House of Commons straight away. And magically, the website of this bank vanished the next day. And uh, uh, the company has since then been uh, struck off. Now, if I can spot these things by simply entering the name of a known criminal on companies at house website, ask yourself, what are our banking regulators doing? What are our financial regulators doing? What on earth is company's house doing? Now, company's house defense is that it is not a regulator, it is just a giant filing box. Well, it should be. It should be at least going through whatever is filed to see that it looks authentic. So this uh, fake bank had all kinds of figures, all kinds of amounts shown on his balance sheets, which were incredible. Uh, so, so, you know, so our regulators are not very vigilant. Though having said that, I do have some sympathy with them. They are incredibly poorly resourced. But nevertheless, even when scandals are known, they seem to do little. So the RBS, HBOS fraud scandals have been going on for more than a decade, and we are no end to conclusion. And the regulators think it is up to the banks themselves to resolve it. If that was the case, why on earth do we need regulators? So, so our regulatory architecture is incredibly poor. You know, I, I, did, I did a study of our regulatory system a couple of years ago. I spoke to many regulators and I asked them all the same question. Uh, who, 
who are you defending in this regulatory system? What is your main function? And they said, our function is to serve the public interest. Of course, they would say that, wouldn't they? Well, next question was, uh, where does the public fit in on your uh, governance structure? So somebody like the Financial Conduct Authority has a consumer panel, but consumer panels uh, don't have any authority. Really, they can't hire and fire bad executives. They can't question bad regulatory approaches. So in other words, none of them have any representatives of public in any position of authority. So the obvious thing is that you need to put ordinary people on the regulatory bodies. And that is something they are all opposed to. I put, I'm, I put forward an amendment to the Financial Services Bill in the House of Lords saying that every regulator should have a supervisory board made up of stakeholders to watch over what the executives do and, uh, and keep them on the straight and narrow. And needless to say, the inbuilt lobby of legislators was opposed to that and the government was not receptive to that. So our regulatory system is really open to capture. You have individuals who come from industry, they do a bit of a stint at the regulatory body, then back to big business, so these kind of revolving doors swinging both ways. And it really marginalizes the concerns of the ordinary people. And the ministerial responses are something like, we need people of experience. Well, if they are so experienced, how it come? They did not, know, did not tell us about a banking crash. They didn't really blow the whistle on the HBOS RBS frauds or the problems of London capital and finance. Uh, you know, you, same problem you have with numerous accounting and auditing scandals. What was the last time the auditor ever blew a whistle on an accounting scandal? So in other words, these people are psychologically standardized. They are aligned with the interests of the very parties they are supposed to be regulating. So if you want a better regulatory system, you need diverse views. So what I'm giving you is another example of how we need to democratize society. We need to democratize our regulatory system. It is at the moment just a plaything of the elites and they generally regulate to give the impression of regulation, but generally go easy on big corporations and big business. And that is a major fault line which we need to address. Mm. Do you think also, Prem, one of the biggest issues is that you don't need the qualification to be an MP. There's no training that you need to do to learn how this Goliath of government works. So is there a case that a lot of uh, politicians may be incompetent to what needs to be done and how to do it, as opposed to them turning a blind, blind eye intentionally to these things, because somehow it would benefit them in a roundabout way. Do you think that's the major cause for concern that they, they haven't had uh, a job outside of being an MP, a lot of them, or they are just so entrenched in, in, a, in at least spouting the fact that they're for, for the people without, have, without having any knowledge of how to actually work for them. I don't particularly buy that line. You know, next time, next somebody might be saying ordinary individuals should not comment on politics and government performance because they've never been a minister or never been, a, been an MP. I, I don't particularly buy that. 
uh, I think just because uh, somebody's got a formal qualification, that does not, uh, you know, if somebody has a formal qualification, that does not mean that their horizons are wide. Uh, you know, so, so I don't particularly buy that uh, line. I think um, many legislators that I know I over the last 20, 30 years uh, come across many members of parliament. They work extremely long hours. They explore many things. They are receptive. Mm -hmm. They have meetings. They learn and they often represent what what is marginalized, ignored, forgotten, overlooked. So I, I would not really buy into that particular line. I think it's also a very dangerous line. Uh, next, somebody be saying only accountants should become a chancellor, only a banker should become a chancellor. But as we have already seen, sometimes experts have very narrow vision, very narrow horizon, and that, that, that is incredibly dangerous. Well, surely to be to be chancellor, you need to have some sort of qualification to understand how the financial system works and how interest rates work and how inflation works and these topics in order to to provide some sort of um, uh, fix or some sort of a stimulus to an, an economy. Are you saying that anyone who may have a passion for international finance can, in theory, be the chancellor of the exchequer? Is there no need to have any kind of background, uh, knowledge of how? The financial system works i think people learn about these things what i'm saying is i am against this idea that you've got to have particular credentials you know in order to become a leading policy maker of course people can be knowledgeable they can learn if they have experience that is helpful but to restrict the holding of high office to only those who have particular credentials i think is wrong because uh, many of the problems we have in our world are there at the moment because often experts bring a very narrow vision with them. That's why I was saying earlier, account uh, auditors are supposed to be experts in accounting. But how many times have you seen auditors tell us that some companies' accounts have been massaged? Or, uh, you know, that they have not really done that. How many times the bankers have told us that the bank is over leveraged, uh, it is engaged in reckless risk taking, it is going to crash the economy. It, it is because they have very narrow set of concerns. So what we really need are people with a broader vision, broader set of concerns. And uh, for that reason, I am against this kind of credentialism. So then what would you attribute these failings to then? Is it because they have such narrow, because things in government are so compartmentalized and they can't really have a view of what's happening in, in the other department or in, in another part of government? Is that the reason why we see such failings in the, in, in the regulatory systems in the UK specifically? Is it because of this compartmentalization or is it anything broader than that that you can ascribe the reason as to why these failings consistently happen over time? I think there is a certain amount of compartmentalization and uh, that does not really help. So, so let me give you an example. Please. In the UK, the, the Chancellor says that he wants a tax system whereby the profits made in the UK 
by selling to customers in the UK are taxed in the UK. That is what the Chancellor has been telling us. And he says that is the tax system he wants. But uh, that is not what the government is doing. So in the recent financial services bill, the government enacted legislation which says that entities based in Gibraltar can sell financial services in the UK. So the net result of that would be what? A company based in Gibraltar sells car insurance, motor car insurance to a customer in the UK. So the sales are made in the UK, profit is made in the UK, but it would be actually booked in Gibraltar, which means that Gibraltar company will not be paying any UK taxes and it will not be taxed in Gibraltar either. Now, you can see the two policies don't match. So the question was, why on earth enact such legislation? Ministers gave no clear explanation other than basically saying, well, Gibraltar is a British overseas territory and needs to be supported. That doesn't make any sense. When you look at online gambling, more than half of the servers of, of online gambling uh, in the UK are based in Gibraltar. So companies are trading in the UK, customers are in the UK, profits are in the UK, but uh, they are being booked in Gibraltar, no taxes are paid in the UK. So you can show, so that I suppose illustrates the point you made about governments not being joined up, not connecting the dots, and that happens uh, uh, quite, quite a lot. But having said that, when you look at the broader system of capitalism, it is full of contradictions. And uh, to, to some extent, many of these crashes are inevitable. Many of the corporate collapses are inevitable. They can't easily be deferred or postponed. But what we can deal with and should deal with are deliberate frauds. They are not inevitable, okay? They are, the, they are really encouraged by what I said earlier because of this intoxication with endless accumulation of private, private wealth. We have, a, we have a vaccine now to deal with coronavirus, but there's no vaccine for dealing with intoxication with wealth uh, and its consequences. So, so what we then need is effective regulation. And, it, and we don't get effective regulation. That is a real problem. We have nearly 700 separate regulatory bodies in the UK. And they all be seen, all are you know, plowing a very different furrow. So we have a government telling us it should be easy to form companies in the UK. We welcome business from anywhere. Then you have the National Crime Agency saying, hey, Shell companies are, use, are, are being used to launder money. They are busy fighting, fighting economic crime. They can't do it. It can't be done. So governments don't have this. And the governments, and not only the current government, also the previous governments, their honor has been to, as it were, ideologically pursue this laissez-faire, to saying is it, it is better to send a signal well, then that has consequences. So when hot money pours into London, what happens? Uh, property prices rocket. Securities market has a bubble. Art markets have a bubble. Now, these bubbles are sooner or later burst. And there are consequences for everyone in the UK. 
and that is what is not really being tackled. And regulated money flows globally are coming into the UK as a haven because there's a system in place that facilitates this, is what you're saying. I remember in 2001 when Enron went bust, you had the Sarbanes-Oxley Act that came in as a, as a sort of panacea to that. Do you see in the UK the situation getting any better in the, in the future? Or do you see this continuing down the same path? And if it is going to continue down the same path, what do you think will be the social, more deeper, apart from just you know, discontent with politicians? What, what do you see yourself um, as the social ramifications if the situation were to get worse over time? Especially now with COVID being uh, a multiplier of, um, of, the of the sacrifices that many people ha have had to make and also the loss of income that many people have been facing over this last year. Well, I think clearly what COVID has shown us is that the biggest casualties are people who are poorly paid, who live in poor housing, poor access to health, uh, health care. So we can't really go back to, should not really go back to a pre-COVID kind of society. We need to improve improve people's life chances, but instead what we have is endless austerity. We have a regressive tax system, which rather than redistributing is making the poor uh, poorer because poor end up paying a higher proportion of their income in taxes than uh, the rich. So I think, you know, we, we need to need change change which improve improves people's lives and that is what we are not getting and we can learn from many other societies uh you know in the us under president biden uh, there is a clear program that the wealthy must pay more in taxes now in the uk they they tell us that the wealthy already pay a very high proportion of the income taxes which we collect and a moment's reflection should tell us that that is actually a matter of shame, that some of the people are earning so much that they are paying large amount in taxes and the others are not. So we really need to redistribute. Look, some 42% of the adults in UK have an annual income of less than the tax-free personal allowance of £12,500. That is an incredible indictment of a society. These people, you know, work hard. There is no law which says that somebody who's a teacher or a security person or a cook or a shop assistant should get miserable wage. Uh, whereas somebody at the top uh, should uh, uh, just walk away with millions. We need to find ways of redistribution. And let me talk about a tax which I like to see, which I would actually like businesses to be able to avoid as well, the only tax. I call it an inequality tax. So let me see, let me just give you the background to that. We live in a world where we believe that the polluter should pay, and that is a justification for a carbon tax. Oh, but social inequalities are also a form of pollution because those who are at the bottom end of it, who suffer from it, can't get access to decent housing, food, healthcare, pensions, education, you name it. 
So what are we doing in the UK? We are actually subsidizing this rampant inequality. So we give actually tax relief on exorbitant executive pay. So the wages paid to workers, which includes wages paid to executives, become part of tax deductible expenses, okay? So what we need to do is establish a ceiling. For example, suppose we said that no executive should be paid more than a million pound for tax purposes. In other words, if companies want to, they can give them 100 million pound. But when it comes to doing the tax calculation, that 100 million would be substituted by 1 million. That is the only thing that will get tax relief on. So what that means is that the other 99 million pound would be taxable. Okay, so we can have this inequality tax. At the moment, we are subsidizing pay payment of vast amount to corporate executives, and that is wrong. So we should not be doing that. So I like to see an inequality tax that does not stop companies paying any amount they want to executives, but it stops the tax subsidy which is given, the, the deduction in their corporate uh, tax uh, return. Um, and, and so if we were levying taxes uh, uh, on this 99 million out of 100 million, I mean, that would generate a large amount of money which could be used to give people, for example, free school dinners, free school meals to every school child. That would help certainly the people at the bottom. We could even provide free broadband links to everybody. Uh, at the moment, the poor people can't easily afford a broadband. So if you're paying £30 a month, that is a, a, a £360 a year. And that, and, and that is quite a large chunk of somebody's post-tax income. So we could distribute things in a very different way. And of course, if companies want to avoid this inequality tax, they can. All they have to do is embrace equitable distribution of income. And uh, I would welcome that. So, so we need to find ways of uh, you know, dealing with these things. But I don't see any major change coming under the current government because the things I'm talking about are office radar. So it is a case of people generating pressure for change, whether it is through the current government or any other government. If people don't call for change, it's not going to happen. And people can do something. Often I meet people and they say, I, uh, you know, what can I do? I feel helpless or I am busy, you know, I'm holding two jobs down to make ends meet. I have very long working hours. I always acknowledge we can't do everything, but everyone can do something. Okay, that is how we got the rights that we have today. So just, you know, just go back a century or so and look at our predecessors, what happened. Uh, did you know, they, despite all the obstacles, they managed to win so many rights, right to vote, right to have trade unions, right to welfare, welfare rights, rights to pensions, and many other things. They used leaflets, they used songs, they used music, they used theater. They used anything which aroused people, made them feel that 
meaningful change is possible. And uh, so yeah. that is what we should all be working towards. It's a good sentiment there, Prem. So in wrapping up this um, podcast today, if anyone wants to learn more about the work that you are planning to do in Parliament, what would be the best way for them to learn about that? I know you, you work with the, the uh, Tax uh, Justice Network, and now you're a newly minted member of the House of Lords. Congratulations. I should have said that probably at the very beginning, but congratulations to that achievement. Um, and we look forward to seeing the work that you do there. But if you are a concerned citizen or even a business person who wants to learn more about the work that, that you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? I write uh, regular articles for Left Foot Forward. That is just one of the places so people can read that. I am on Twitter. I am on LinkedIn. I am also on Facebook. Uh, people can see what I'm writing about there. I have a page like other members of the House of Lords, which is on uh, on the internet. They can find me there, my page on the House of Lords, which indicates all my contributions, votes, written, and also spoken words. Uh, they can they can get an idea of what I am doing there. I also have an email address, which is shown on my House of uh, Lords page. People can contact me there and I'd be delighted to talk to them and I'd be delighted to contribute to any seminars and podcasts like this or any other meetings they may be having. So all, all I believe is that uh, uh, together we can bring about more meaningful change. And this is something which is never ending. This will go on and on and on because the social, the quest for social justice is never ending. And uh, together we can make that vital difference. Excellent sentiment. And I'll make sure to include all of the links that you mentioned in the description to all the platforms that we put this podcast on. So once more, thank you so much, Prem Sika for your time with us today. It's my pleasure and thank you for inviting me.